Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me today, as so often, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We had a very choppy week last week in the markets, um, and it has been quite interesting again this week. What's been the story uh, out there, uh, Simon? Yeah, I think choppy is absolutely the right word, actually. Uh, Again, for this week, it's been a tough week for the market, uh, despite a little bit of respite towards the end of the week. So the UK market uh, will end down about 1.3% in the form of the FTSE All Share. Investment companies will have underperformed compared with that, probably about 3% or so down. And just to put a little bit of perspective on that, so far this year, the UK market hasn't fared too badly, actually, probably up around about 10% overall. But the investment company sector, probably just just in positive territory, probably about 1%. In terms of this week, the sector average discount, well, unsurprisingly, given the market backdrop, it widened out. So it started the week around about 2% uh, and widened probably nearer to 3%, though that still represents quite tight levels Uh, something on a historic basis. But uh, as I'm sure we'll now go on to discuss, it has been a a tough week for growth investors, for technology. We've seen a bit of a sell-off for those names, focus on technology and particularly US tech stocks, uh, and also Japan as well. Um, Those uh, investment trust companies focused on Japanese smaller companies have had a tougher time of it. And really what's going on here? Well, it's all about inflation. The fact is that people are now expecting a a real pickup uh, in inflation and they seem to be uh, a lot of speculation that that might result in interest rate increases and therefore have uh, quite a significant value potentially on the valuations of higher growth equities. But uh, it remains to be seen how this works out. Yes, this uh, this is, if you like, the new narrative that's been uh, preoccupying investors so far for much of this year. Um, I think it's fair to say that the performance of investment trust versus the FTSE All Share Index I mean, that is the kind of mirror image of what happened or we saw last year, essentially, where I think it, uh, we saw the UK market doing quite poorly and or for a number of years, actually, and the uh, investment trust sector doing uh, much better. And that was in part down just to the nature of the investment trust sector. I think, as we discussed before, it has a, has a, a larger global component uh, and it has uh, essentially more growth in it than the UK market, which has traditionally been full of cyclical SOPs, banks and energy companies, which were way out of favour last year. So uh, I don't think we should get too alarmed about it. But would you say that's a fair summary of why we've seen this disparity in performance uh, so far this year? Yeah, I think that's spot on. And, you know, we're talking about this year, we're, we're what, four and a half months into it. Uh, if you look over the longer term, five years or so, uh, investment companies have significantly outperformed. And, and last year, they're one of the best performing subsectors in the UK marketplace. Right. So we'll have to see how long that goes. Of course, we've also been saying that the UK market has looked cheap for quite a long time. And we have seen uh, more international investors coming back to look at the UK now that the pandemic is at least moving into the next phase and the UK has done quite well. And also the fact that Brexit is at least out of the way in terms of the we've moved into the new post-Brexit era. And we haven't don't hear a lot about that in the news at the moment, uh, which I guess is probably quite a good sign. There have been some teething troubles. But in any event, markets are all about seasons. There's a time for everything. And let's go on and talk about some of the... Uh, things that have been going on this week. There's always news to talk about, as we know. Let's start off with just a quick uh, catch-up on a piece of corporate activity. Let's start with Strategic Equity Capital, SEC. There's been a little bit of news there, I think. 
Yeah, that's right. So this week we learned that Gresham House, which is the investment manager of this particular investment trust, has actually purchased shares in the investment trust, equivalent to about 5.4% of its share capital. Uh, And this is in line with the indication it made uh, back in March last year when it was appointed investment manager. It said it would look to take a stake in the company. uh, And now that has come to pass. So uh, Gresham House took responsibility for the investment trust on in May uh, and Ken Wotton became lead manager of this one in September last year. But uh, as, as regular followers of this podcast may remember, strategic equity capital has it been in the news this year. A couple of its larger shareholders, Ian Armitage and Jonathan Morgan, effectively uh, requisitioned the investment trust to hold a, a continuation vote, which happened, uh, I think, March-April time. The continuation vote was passed. 82% were in favour, but they did have 8.4 million shares voted against continuation. And certainly those two shareholders in particular were critical of the board and some of the decisions they'd made. So uh, an interesting development that the investment manager has taken a stake in the company. What does it mean? Well, I think it probably remains to be seen, but not an insignificant investment, probably uh, at today's share price, about £10.5 million worth of stock that they picked up this week. So as I recall, the reason they did that was to kind of demonstrate their commitment to doing something uh, substantive with this trust, which has been through a number of different managers and indeed uh, owners, or at least uh, investment managers. Uh, Grisham House have only been in charge of this one for uh, a little while, I think. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. So literally May last year. So we're coming on at the first anniversary of their involvement in the company. Though, to be fair, Tony Dolwood, who I think he's CIO of Grisham House, certainly one of the, the, the top people there, he was actually the original investment manager of this particular investment trust when it was launched back in 2005. So he does have heritage with the company. And just uh, quickly then, has, has anything happened to the share price? No. How has the market been treating all these uh, goings-on floating around this particular company? Well, we have seen the discount narrow in uh, on this one. So it's probably around about a 10 11% discount at the moment. But over the last 12 months, that's averaged 19%. And we have seen it as wide as 27%. So it's certainly been re-rated and that 11% discount, that's the tightest rating it's been on in the previous 12 months. Okay, so let's move on and talk some more about fundraising. There's been uh, some more fundraising news this week. Seems to be some every week, actually, which is uh, good for the sector, I guess. So let's start off by talking about Aquila Energy Efficiency. We've heard some more details from them, I think. That's right. Well, they're looking to come to the market. They're looking at an IPO. They wish to raise up to £150 million. Pounds, uh, and this investment company will look to invest in assets that seek to reduce primary energy consumption, reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions, and in many cases, deliver economic savings and other benefits to counterparties, including improved air quality. So what does that mean to investors? Well, a yield is a part of the story here. So they're looking to return or pay a, a minimum dividend of 3.5p for their financial year ending 31st December 2022 and 5p thereafter. Uh, so obviously income, big part of the story. In terms of the target total return, they're looking at between 75 and 9.5% per annum over the, the medium term. So uh, an interesting development. They're looking at assets of with cash flows of um, probably about 10 million euros with asset-backed contracts with duration of 5 to 15 years. Uh, and they've got a pipeline set up of around about 210 million euros and an additional 300 million uh, behind that. 
So the IPO closes on the 27th of May, and all being well, this uh, company will start trading on the 2nd of June. So what do we know about Aquila? They do have another investment trust out there, I think. But of course, this one is slightly more or less perhaps uh, glamorous. You don't see lots of pictures of you know, solar panels or, or, or wind farms out there. But actually, increasing energy efficiency is just as important as actually in producing new supplies of energy. So uh, how will this one compare to what they, uh, what they have out there already in the investment trust sector? Yeah, no, you make a good point. I mean, Aquila Group are a German-based outfit, and I think they've really specialised in this area. So their existing uh, investment company that's listed in the UK is Aquila European Renewables Income, uh, and that came to the market back in June 2019. They raised €154 million at that stage, so comparable to what they're trying to do now. And, and that was more in line with some of the other products, some of the other investment companies that are already out there. So it invests in solar, wind and hydroelectric. So um, in terms of how that one has performed, it's uh, it's trading on a, a premium rating, probably about 9% premium or so. Uh, it's grown to a market cap of above 290 million and offers a yield on a historic basis of 4.2%. Yes, I had a quick look at the, this company. As you say, it's a German company and it operates on a European-wide basis, obviously, as it's as the name of its other trust suggests, and they have they have about twelve and a half billion uh, under management total. So this is only a relatively small part of their business, um, but obviously they see attractions in listing on the UK uh, market, which is good to see. Okay, so we'll see how that one goes. Let's move on and talk about uh, JLEN Environmental Assets, JLEN. This is from uh, a stable we've talked about a couple of times in the last uh, few weeks. Uh, what have they had to say this week? So they announced the results of their, their latest uh, fundraising, and that was an oversubscribed placing of just short of 55 million shares that raised 57 million pounds uh, for the company. Those shares were issued at 104p per share. Uh, they start trading at the start of next week, and the proceeds from, from that particular fundraising will be used to pay down the Investment Trust credit facility, and that creates more funding headroom for them going forward. And actually, they've identified a pipeline of near-term opportunities, as they put it, and that includes uh, additional investments into operational bioenergy assets and battery storage plays. So these two things are all very much in keeping with the kind of pattern we've been seeing so far this year in terms of fundraising. We've seen quite a lot in the renewable energy, quite a lot in infrastructure generally, and of course, a kind of flavour of ESG and environmental concerns as well. Uh, so do you think this is the end of the story or we, there's more to come from this uh, from this kind of trust coming back to the market? No, I think there's more to come. I mean, at the moment, if you look at um, the renewable energy uh, kind of infrastructure space, the average premium rating, and, and most of them possibly one exception are trading on premiums, but the average premium is somewhere between 8 and 9%. So in other words, the ratings are strong. Um, they are kind of meeting their dividend targets, which is an important part of the story for investors, no doubt. Uh, and so, again, the, the kind of weighted average yield on these funds uh, is just over 5%. And clearly, that's uh, a relatively attractive level, particularly in a low interest rate environment. So I think the story feels sound to me for the reasons that you've outlined. I mean, I think there is an awful lot of interest in those type plays that are doing something good for the environment, uh, a kind of beneficial uh, for where we find ourselves with the climate at the moment, and yet offer attractive yields as well. So I think, frankly, they tick a lot of boxes. Okay, so we'll move on and we'll talk about another company which we've talked about quite recently, which has been doing really well since the lows of last year, and that is Polar Capital Global Financials, PCFT. This is an investment trust that invests in uh, 
financial stocks, so banks and uh, a few uh, what we call fintech companies, people doing clever things in the financial area with uh, with technology, and uh, one or two other things, and a few insurance companies as well. Um, so what have they had to say? They've, they're obviously looking to raise money as well, capitalise on their recent uh, strong performance. No, that's absolutely right. And a really interesting story here. And it just shows how things can change around in relatively short order with markets. So they've announced this week proposals for a, a placing Oprah offer, offer for subscription, targeting up to 100 million C shares. Uh, and that will be accompanied by a new placing program as well. So they've actually produced a prospectus as well uh, with more details around that. And shareholders get a vote on that on the 16th of June to approve it. But just to remind people, we turn the clock back to this time last year, actually, that the company returned uh, £81 million of its capital via a tender. Um, it shrunk to around about £120 million or so in size at that stage. Uh, and not quite from that moment, but certainly towards the end of last year when financials came back in favour. So to their rating strengthened, they issued new shares. Uh, and today they find themselves with a market cap of about £280 million. And obviously they were hoping to grow that substantially again if this C-share were to be successful. Right. And I guess this uh, whole environment, if it's true that investment uh, interest rates are rising, as it were, on a rising trend, and certainly if that's uh, true of longer term interest rates, that environment is very positive normally for banks and so on. And that's one of the reasons why they've done so well. So I would imagine uh, this would be a good uh, test of whether or not, you know, the investment community out there is uh, is inclined to support this view that uh, higher interest rates are coming along, as well as a kind of cyclical recovery in, in bank shares. Yeah, I think that's right. And and I think it's a good opportunity as well. Clearly, they, they have been trading well for a period of time. They have been trading on a premium rating that's allowed them to issue shares. But by doing a C-share, it enables the, the investment management team, so that's Nick Rind, uh, George Barrow, and uh, John Yakas, to kind of go out and tell the story and offer a liquidity event, particularly for those larger investors, actually, who rather than just look to seek to, to pick up shares through the secondary market, can actually make a decent allocation to this company. Uh, and it's worth noting that actually with the C-share, that that will convert into ordinary shares after uh, the next dividend is paid in early August. Um, and obviously, yield is, a, is an, again, a key part of the financial story. But that's the reason I think they've gone down this particular route. So uh, it'll be very, very interesting to see how they fare with this one. I mean, you said that up to uh, 100 million new C shares. So um, what does that imply in terms of you know how much capital they're hoping to raise? Is that 100 million C shares at a pound a share? Or is it how do they fix the pricing of that? I think that's right. I think it'll be 100 million C shares, a pound a share, and then there will be a conversion into the ordinary shares in that early August period. So again, that might may prove to be a little bit of attraction. I mean, the shares at the moment are trading on a, on a small premium between about 3 and 4%. So in theory, you're getting in, I mean, there will be costs of the C-share issue. So you've got to be, I'm not sure what the initial NAV of those C-shares will be, but I suspect it'd be somewhere between 98 and 99p. That's the kind of the level that you would expect. So that may prove uh, attractive to some investors as well. Okay, so that's certainly one to watch over the next uh, couple of weeks. See how that one goes. I suspect it will do quite well, I have to be honest. And uh, it's an interesting company. It's a kind of good example of a specialist uh, fund that you can find in the investment trust sector if you buy the story that they have to offer. Let's move on and talk about some results now. We start off with North Atlantic Smaller Companies, uh, NAS. Uh, again, a rather idiosyncratic uh, beast, this one. What have they had to say, Simon? 
Yes, that's right. So they announced their annual results for the year to the end of January, so 31st of January 2021, and actually quite a strong set of results. The NAV was up just short of 21% in that year, and that compared to a rise of 11% for the S&P 500 Composite Index. It's probably worth just pausing at that moment to establish what this particular investment trust does. It's got, as you say, a rather specialist mandate. It invests in smaller companies based, as it puts it, on countries bordering the North Atlantic Ocean, which I think we can take to mean uh, the UK and the US. And actually, the portfolio is quite tilted and has been for a few years towards the UK. I think it's about 84% in the UK at the moment, 7% in the US. It's run by a gentleman called Christopher Mills, who is, I think we can safely say, a veteran uh, investor. He was the founder of J.O. Hambro Capital Management many, many years ago, uh, and slightly more recently, the founder of Harwood Capital Management as well, but a hugely experienced investor. The portfolio is very much focused on smaller companies, small caps, and actually they've got some private companies in the portfolio as well. And what happened this year is actually they benefited from high weighting to UK-listed life sciences companies, obviously probably quite a good place to have been over the last year. And that certainly was the case in this instance. Uh, They also had an IPO of a company called Telos as well, which um, benefited their unquoted US portfolio. But the end of January, they had 15% in unquoted net assets of 742 million. So quite a substantial uh, investment trust company of which 89 million, uh, so that's about 12% or so was in cash or US treasury bills. And that's really a reflection of the fact they had a number of uh, successful investments uh, that, that were realised, but also the manager's cautious outlook. He talks about the market running ahead of the fundamentals. Indeed. He's not alone in that. I think it's worth pointing out that uh, Christopher Mills has the distinction of having one of the largest uh, personal shareholdings in an investment trust out in the universe. Uh, I get that from uh, some useful data I find in the investment trust handbook. And uh, he has a personal stake, or did have, uh, this is what, uh, October, a couple of years ago, he had a personal stake of £110 million in North American smaller companies. So you can't accuse him of not having some skin in the game. Let's put it that way. Let's move on and talk about uh, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. It's been uh, a very up and down uh, few weeks for Scottish Mortgage, uh, but the results, of course, are pretty spectacular. They are. They are indeed. And just to be clear, this is the annual results for the year to the 31st of March 2021. And just to deal with the numbers first, the NAV total return was up 111%, and that compared to a rise of just short of 40% for the FTSE All World Index. Share price total return, not quite as impressive as the NAV, but it was still up 99% in that 12-month period. In terms of issuance, uh, they have been issuing shares over a number of years now. And in fact, in that year, they issued just short of 25 million shares. But they also bought back uh, shares as well, nearly 56.5 million shares bought back. So the net buyback in the year was 420 million. And I would suggest that's one way they're trying to ensure that the share price volatility or really the discount the rating volatility of this one remains uh, relatively muted. In terms of the revenue per share, which is probably one of the, the less uh, important aspects of the story, but just to cover it off, that was down in the year. But actually, they still increased their dividend by 5% to 3.42p. But really, you're absolutely right. It's about what the investment managers have to say on this one. Uh, and I think one of the statements I took away from it is that we would caution against elation, they wrote, after the past 12 months, just as we would counsel against misery following unprofitable years. Um, but the manager, James Anderson and Tom Slater, have been busy. Their sales in the period included Facebook and Alphabet, 
they've reduced Amazon, which has been a very long-term holding for them. And that was on the back of the news of Jeff Bezos stepping back. And they've also sold 80% of their holding in Tesla, which is clearly one of the key drivers of their returns. But the range and uh, the ideas behind the companies that they're buying are really fascinating. And we, we don't have time to discuss them all today, but uh, well worth a read, a whole host of companies that they're clearly hoping will be the, the future Facebook alphabets and Amazons uh, of their, their day. But if people are genuinely interested, and I suspect many are, it is worth reading Actually, both investment managers have their own separate investment managers report in the results, which is probably a, a little bit unusual. Tom Slater runs through the changes. It's absolutely fascinating. But then James Anderson gets his chance, as he puts it, quite reflective, actually, in some ways, over his 20 odd years in charge of Scottish mortgage. He talks about how his uh, greatest failing has been uh, to be insufficiently radical uh, and he also sets out his stall by suggesting the world of a conventional investment management is irretrievably broken. So not short of things to say. And I think, uh, as we've probably just discussed before, he will be much missed across the industry when he retires in April next year. Well, it has been an extraordinary run and uh, not least in the last uh, period we just talked about. I mean, for for the what is already, the, I think, the largest investment trust in the UK to double in size to produce 100% NAV total return over a 12-month period is pretty remarkable, one has to say. But of course, Scottish Mortgage has also been at the eye of the storm in the last few weeks, as you mentioned at the outset, the uh, the sell-off in technology shares. That's had a knock-on effect on Scottish Mortgage because it is uh, does invest in a number of these uh, large technology shares, though not the ones that, uh, you know, as you pointed out, divested from uh, from Google, for example, uh, completely and cut right back on Tesla. Uh, but nonetheless, its share price went a long way up and now it's come quite a long way down. And is that uh, is that normal in the history of Scottish mortgage? I um, mean, share price over many years, yes. I mean, it ha- there has been periods of volatility um, and actually it probably captures a little bit of changing sentiment as well. But I, I think some people see it as a proxy of the Teslas and the Alphabets and Amazons and all the rest of it. And I think the reality is that although these companies have undoubtedly been important over a long period of time, that this is a company that's evolving all the time and really moving on. And as I said, you know, the fact that they've some of those companies are no longer in the portfolio, others have been sold down in, in the case of Tesla quite significantly. This is a very, and it has been for a number of years, a very unique portfolio uh, in terms of the way that it's been set up. And I think investors or potential investors in it should really have a have a good look and try to understand what they're doing. It is very much about how they see the future. Uh, and it's really about embracing change. Indeed it is. And I think it is well worth reading the uh, these annual results and seeing the kind of thoughts they have about the future and the criticisms they make of the present. Uh, and I think at the heart of James Anderson's criticism of the, of the market is perhaps something we're also guilty of from time to time, which is this kind of over-obsessive concentration on what happens from one week to the next. Uh, that is what we do in this podcast, I hasten to add. But uh, I think we like to keep an eye on the long term as well. And his point is that there's only so much you can read into what the price of a share is today and to what a price-earnings ratio in, uh, say, May 2021 means about how long your company you're investing in can continue to grow over a period of years. It's just a snapshot figure. And so if everything you talk about is in terms of PE ratios and so on, it's uh, perhaps missing the wood for the trees. And I think there's a lot of validity in that myself. But they've one of the few investment companies are actually prepared to really you know, put their uh, shoulder behind that idea of patient long-term investing, accepting the volatility along the way. And I think that's uh, it's very good that we have that, at least that uh, alternative out there. They've been buying back shares, but they're still trading at a discount, I think, at the moment, as of today, are they not? 
Well, the rating has has moved around quite a bit this year, actually. So over the 12-month period, they probably averaged about a 0.6% discount. So really nothing to talk about. But within that year, and obviously it has been quite volatile uh, for everybody, frankly, over the last 12, 14 months or so. But over the last 12 months, they've traded between a premium, probably about 7% and a discount of 12%. At the moment, we've got them on a discount of about 2 or 3%. So they have been very good at... Uh, buying back their shares, not necessarily every day, but clearly where they they think that there's a bit of a disconnect between the share price and the NAV. Uh, and I think that's important. So just to kind of dampen down that discount volatility that you're always going to get with a, with a, a, an investment trust of this, of this type. So we've seen the volatility, but as you say, they're doing their best to dampen it. But uh, it's something you have to live with if you want to join in the party, as it were, with uh, with Scottish Mortgage. And the returns to date have been, uh, over the last uh, 10 years, have been quite remarkable. Let's move on to some other companies then that have been reporting. Not all of them producing such good numbers, it has to be said. But let's start off with BlackRock Smaller Companies Trust, BRSC, BlackRock Smaller Companies. They've also had some annual results out, uh, but this time to 28th of February rather than the 31st of March. That's right. And in that time, their NAV total return was up uh, nearly 17%, uh, which is not a, a bad result in absolute terms. However, it was behind their benchmark return, which was up 23%. In share price terms, not as good as either of those numbers, actually. Share price total return was up 14%. And really, the story here was that they underperformed in the in the first half of that 12-month period. Effectively, uh, they went into the uh, the kind of the big sell-off when the pandemic hit initially. They were overweight uh, UK domestic names. Uh, and the manager, Roland Arnold, uh, also observed that they were probably a little bit too early to participate in some of the refinancings that we saw uh, in Q2 of last year. So JD Weatherspoon and SSP being uh, examples there. This particular investment trust does have a, a good long-term record, but clearly a more difficult period. Uh, and at the year end, their gearing stood at 9%, so presumably positioned for some kind of bounce back in the UK. As you say, it's had a, a pretty good uh, long-term record. Uh, there was a change of manager not so long ago, I think I'm right in saying. The previous manager was there for a number of years and had attracted a strong uh, following. Do you think there's something partly to do with that and how the, the trust has uh, become a slightly less popular more recently? I mean, Mike Printers, I think, is the gentleman you're referring to who retired a, a number of years ago. Uh, Mike had a fantastic uh, performance record, and um, I think he was responsible for the investment trust, I'm going to say, over the best part of 20 years, so a long-standing manager. I wouldn't put it down to a change of manager. I mean, within BlackRock, their smaller UK smaller companies team is a well-resourced and there is a, a bit of a collegiate atmosphere. Mike was part of that and that continues to this day. So it would be wrong to suggest that it was just one person behind it. And I think Ron Arnold is, is very highly rated within that team. So I think it's just a change of circumstances, to be honest. I mean, uh, you know, he's not the only investment manager who started off 2020 thinking that the UK was about to have a a good run and that some of the uh, you know more domestically focused names probably offered quite decent value. I think that was pretty much the consensus view and, and clearly circumstances changed as we all know, unfortunately. So um, I wouldn't be too, too bogged down in what happened, particularly in the first half of last year. I think that was exceptional times. And in terms of discount, of course, we talked a lot about the smaller company sector and, uh, and how some of the discounts have come in. But there aren't many that have ever managed to issue shares at, uh, at a premium. There have been a couple recently. Uh, how do they trade? Yeah, they're on a 5% discount at the moment, which is um, you know, not a bad rating at all. I mean, UK small cap overall, um, although you know, historically has seen quite wide discounts, uh, the weighted average discount on a UK small cap fund at the moment is probably about 6%. 
So BlackRock, smaller companies, is a little bit narrower than that. But it, that in itself, that particular investment trust, it's probably averaged about 6 or 7% discount over the last 12 months. Uh, but again, quite a range, uh, as is true for all of them. So uh, I think there's actually quite a lot of interest in UK small cap names in general for the reasons that we've, we've talked about probably at the, the, the top of this podcast, actually, of the opportunities uh, offered in, in the UK uh, market at the moment. So I think it's a relatively uh, strong rating. Okay, well, let's move on and talk about uh, Downing Strategic Microcap. This is even further down the market capitalization scale. DSM, Downing Strategic Microcap, and they've also had annual results out for the same period. That's correct. And their NAV total return was up uh, just short of 14%. So just a little bit off BlackRock smaller companies. It's worth saying, as you, as you mentioned, in, uh, the clues in the name that they invest further down the market caps scale. So in micro cap stocks, uh, they don't have a formal benchmark, but it's worth noting that their rivals, um, so that's the, the Might and UK micro cap fund and the River Mercantile UK micro cap fund, both had uh, far stronger returns over the same period. But in terms of Downing Strategic Microcap, their share price return was up about 14% uh, as their discount uh, narrowed a little bit. But it's um, again, it's worth noting this is a very focused portfolio. The manager, Judith McKenzie, noted that all the investments now in the portfolio are in late stage turnaround or growth phases. Um, and that she estimates that the portfolio is probably valued at a 43% discount to its uh, base intrinsic value. So in other words, she thinks it's quite cheap and there's some good upside there. But it's on a wider discount, certainly, than the, the two other microcap funds that I mentioned, probably on about a 12% discount or so at the moment. And it is the smallest uh, of those three names. So it has a market cap of 40 million. The others uh, are north of 100 million at the moment. Okay, so we'll move on. And we talked about James Anderson and uh, Tom Slater at Scottish Mortgage. Another talking to a, a trust now run by another very well-known uh, investment manager, and that's Nick Train. Uh, and this is Finsbury Growth and Income, FGT, Finsbury Growth and Income. They've had some interim results out. And, you know, Nick Train's been going through uh, quite a tough time over the last uh, six months by his uh, by his high standards anyway. Yeah, that's right. And uh, these are the, the results for the six months to the end of March. In that time, uh, Finsbury Growth and Income generated an NAV total return of 2.2%, and that compares with 18.5% for the FTSE all share. In share price terms, did a little bit better, up 3.7%. So uh, what's the story here? Well, basically, the trust, investment trust underperformed the vaccine bounce that we saw back in November. And actually, detractors in the period include uh, such holdings as Unilever, while Heineken, um, Mondelez and Fevertree saw share price falls in the first quarter of this year. But uh, Nick writes a very good uh, investment manager's report and he kind of sets out his stall and goes through what's happened in this period. So he highlighted some of the key holdings. London Stock Exchange saw integration issues. Burberry uh, had a bit of problem from its uh, Chinese tensions uh, and uh, relics uncertainty over its exhibitions and conference businesses. But uh, I mean, Nick Train is quite clear what he's trying to do. It's a very concentrated portfolio, 25 holdings. The top 10 of holdings represent about 80% or so of net assets. And it's focused on digital products and services, luxury and premium consumer brands, and trusted wealth management services, as they put it. So I don't think there's any signs of him changing what he does. Indeed, that's been the hallmark of his whole uh, time as uh, manager of this particular trust and his other funds he manages as well. 
very very low turnover. I think there was a period when one year he didn't he didn't buy any new investment at all, uh, and that's his style. He again he's a long term investor and again got a fabulous track record. Of course, one of the what a curious is this one is it, I think it's in, still in the UK equity income sector, isn't it, uh, Simon? Is that right? Yet it doesn't really pay much of a, of a dividend by comparison to some others. Does am I right about that? Um, well, it's the yield at the moment on a historic basis is just below two percent, so one point nine percent. Which obviously, when you look across the peer group, the UK equity income space, probably the average yield is just above four percent, four point two percent. So yes, the yield is a lot lower than many of its peers. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you're about to ask me about the AIC Stats Committee and uh, you know what what are they doing? What are they thinking of? And I, I can tell you, it is it is a debating point, not just uh, with the Stats Committee, but across the industry. Where should it sit? I mean, I think it's worth observing that Finsby Growth and Income. That there's a clue in the title, frankly, that the the dividend has always been an important part of the story. But frankly, we've seen a lot of yield compression because of that very strong. Uh, performance, that capital performance over a number of years. And that's resulted in in the investment trust's low yield. Well, as you know, I'm fascinated by the stats committee of the AIC. I think we should have open meetings quite soon and, uh, you know, press conferences after you've held your latest meeting. But uh, <laughs> it just highlights the fact what a, what a tricky job it is to decide where to put these trusts. I mean, not everybody is just going to look at one sector and compare them to everything else. But uh, this one has always struck me as rather anomalous because it's not really what he does. But anyway, let's move on and talk about um, another trust then, Schroeder Income Growth. Sounds like it's in the same sort of game, but uh, it's not entirely a similar sort of animal. What, uh, what have they had to say? Well, they had interim results out as well. This is for the six-month period to the end of February, so 28th of February this year. A decent set of results, actually. NAV total return just over 16% in that six-month period, and that compared with a rise of 12% for the FTSE all-share index. In share price terms, they did even better, actually. 19.6% rise in that period. And the performance of this investment trust was assisted by bids for G. For S and William Hill, uh, and also some strong underlying performance from holdings such as Pets at Home and Anglo American. Actually, and Gearing was a very uh, also positive in this time. Um, that stood at nine percent at the end of February, and that added about uh, just short of two percent to the performance. But as you observe, it sits in the UK equity income uh, peer group, and they've paid two interim dividends of well, totaling five p. In the period, though, funded partly by revenue reserves, and actually their income was down forty six percent in the period. Though the expectation is that they expect to see that rise in the second half of their financial year. But the manager has been busy, uh, so Sunofco has been running this one for some time. She a lot of portfolio activity actually, selling a number of companies with she described as having a weak dividend outlook. Some very well known companies: BP, BT, HSBC, ITV, and Next. Uh, and uh, recycling that capital into those companies that she believes have uh, better dividend prospects and indeed capital growth. So a good set of results. But for her trouble, for Schroeder's trouble, they've actually seen um, not an insignificant decrease in their management fee. Um, so this is something that we've see, we see with some regularity. Um, and, and really, this is where the, the role of independent boards does come in because they always seem quite quick to negotiate on the fee front. The new management fee for uh, this particular investment trust has been reduced to 0.45% of assets uh, on an annualised basis, and there's a fixed fee of 150 grand as well. The previous fee was uh, 0.65 on the first 200 million of assets, uh, dropping to 0.55 thereafter. 
uh, and they estimate that there's about a 19% saving on the investment management fee as a result of that change. Yes, well, that's an interesting point. I mean, again, I just had a quick look through the the numbers for the management fee as a percentage of the company, and there's a very wide range in the equity income sector. I mean, there are some who are still up around uh, 1%. I don't know if you've got those figures in front of you, but... um, there's some over about 1%. And then there's City of London right down at the top with about, I think it's about 0.35 or 0.36%. And uh, others around, you know, 50, half a percentage point. So why do you think there's not more peer group pressure on the fees in this sector? No, it's a good point. I mean, what, what you tend to find is that those investment trusts with lower fees are invariably those that have the larger asset base, i.e. they're the larger companies. So City of London that you've highlighted there, I mean, assets are probably about 1.8 billion at the moment. So the second largest after Finsbury Growth and Income, so a substantial investment trust. And I think where you do have those larger investment trusts, invariably we have seen lower fees. Uh, equally, uh, for the, the, the smaller mandates, the pattern is that they're probably nearer to, to 1%, broadly speaking, for that kind of long-only equity mandate. And that reflects that there are actually quite a few costs involved in running investment trusts, particularly smaller investment trusts, I don't know you're aware, but there are cost benefits or cost efficiencies the larger you get, and that's reflected in the ongoing charges. Indeed, it's a very what we call a very scalable business, and um, that's one reason why um, Scottish Mortgage offers such a low management fee because they are so large, and the uh, the amount of money they actually receive is considerably larger than, than a lot of these smaller trusts would get, despite having higher fees. Okay, let's move on to more specialist uh, trusts now reporting. Let's start off with Three I, a well-known Three I group uh, whose. Uh, Ticker is uh, not surprisingly III. What uh, what do they have to say? So they announced their results for the year to 31st of March. Uh, and again, a decent set of results. Their NAV was up to short of 18% in that period. And the shareholder total return was actually 22%. So 3i Group is a substantial investment company now, if you want to call it in those terms. Uh, net assets of 9.2 billion. They increased their total dividend for the year from 35p to 38.5p. A few things didn't work in their favour. So foreign exchange movements was against them. Um, and also they got hit with costs on their pension plan. But the underlying components of the uh, the, the business effectively did well, particularly the private equity side. And really, um, there's a key holding here, a company called Action, uh, which is a discount retailer based, uh, well, across Europe now. And that saw an uplift to its valuation of £1.2 billion. So obviously, quite a key driver of return. And that actually... Uh, business, the valuation of that business is probably equivalent to uh, just over half of 3i Group's net assets now. So um, a very important uh, holding for it. Uh, it also has an investment in 3i Infrastructure, which uh, obviously is a part of the of the 3i Group. Um, and certainly their infrastructure business did well up 16% this year. So all in all, it was a good period for them. Interestingly, they moved from a net cash position at the start of the year to a net debt position, only 8% geared. Um, and that reflected the fact that they actually uh, returned quite a lot of money in dividends to shareholders. But they also completed over £500 million of new and further investments in that year. And that included some, uh, effectively some capital follow-on investment to uh, support just a couple of the existing portfolio businesses, particularly those in the travel and leisure industries that obviously struggled over the last year. And uh, what's, the, what's the story that they give about uh, their holding in uh, action? I mean, what is the end game there? Is that another one that's going to come to market eventually, do you think? Or will it be sold on to somebody else? It's such a big component of the net assets, as you say. And presumably, if they did ever, if it did ever come to market or they did ever sell it, they'd have to uh, 
they get an awful lot of cash, so they'd have to think about what they did with that, would they not? Yeah. Do, you, do they? What do they say about that? What's their What's their story on that? Well, I think I think the, to take a step back. I mean, Action has just been an incredible investment for them, um, and uh, you know they've been in that company now for a number of years. And I remember when the investment was first made, and, and uh, a number of other private equity houses probably had a, a smaller pieces of it, and it wasn't necessarily obvious that that was going to be the driver of returns. Clearly, it was a very decent business. It came out of the Netherlands, but I don't think. I certainly didn't. I suspect many people didn't realise just quite how scalable a discount retailer really was. Uh, and the way it's been rolled out across Europe has just been incredible. You know, you might have thought that given COVID-19 and the impact from the pandemic and the impact it's had on retail over the last year, that this was a business that you really wouldn't want to be in. But actually, I don't have the numbers to hand, but the way that action has navigated its way through the last 12 months and still continue to grow uh, is just quite incredible. You know, where does 3i go with it? That's uh, you know a very good question. I mean, I think they can see that there is still huge upside potential with this business. There was a liquidity event for uh, certain investors a year or two back, and some people did exit at that stage. But um, the, the the management team behind Action itself are incredibly ambitious for the long term uh, for the company. They they think they've still got a lot to go for. You know, what could happen to the business? Well, it's getting to a size now where it could be absolutely be a publicly listed company. And, and one suspects it would be quite an attractive publicly listed company at the right price. I think there would be a lot of interest in that. So I think the point is that there's a lot of options uh, for the future of this business. And, and, and clearly, 3i are happy to, to run with it for the time being. I have to say, I do go to the Netherlands quite often for family reasons. And uh, they do have some remarkably good retailers over there, I have to say. I mean, not just this one, but... Uh, Looking out of the window of my office here, I can see an action carrier bag in the garden, which has got some uh, some kids' toys in it at the moment, but that's by the by. Uh, they do also the shops like Albert Hain and Hamer, which you can see them in uh, beginning to appear in the UK. They're actually uh, very well run and uh, very efficient, and their pricing is extraordinarily low, rather like you know, rather like Aldi and Lidl and the other German uh, retailers. So maybe they got lessons for us over here. Well, I'm sure they do have lessons for us. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, we talked about 3i Group. We've also got 3i Infrastructure. You mentioned them as well. They've also put out their results at the same time. What have they been doing? How how big an improvement have been there? Yeah, so annual results again to the 31st of March. NAV total return uh, 9.2% in that year, and that's in line with their uh, 8 to 10% per annum medium-term target. Uh, share price terms actually very strong in that particular period, up uh, 24%. Income is a very key part of the story here. And the 4.9p final dividend takes total dividends for the year to 9.8p, and that's 6.5% higher than their financial year in 2020, and it's in line with their target. And they feel uh, brave enough or bold enough to increase the target for the dividend for the financial year 2022 by 6.6% to 10 spot 45p. So obviously uh, a key part of the story, though. It's worth noting on this one that they, they have been very successful over the long term, but they are sitting on quite a bit of cash, 463 million to be precise. That was at the end of March. Uh, and the manager commented that uh, competition for new investments is higher than ever, uh, and they remain very selective in pursuing new opportunities. In other words, they don't really want to overpay uh, to get that capital deployed. So um, showing some capital discipline there. And the implication is that maybe some of the peer group are doing just that. And that's uh, an interesting one to think about. Okay, we'll move on. We have a lot of results to get through. JP Morgan Multi-Asset Growth and Income, M-A-T-E, MATE. Uh, they've also had some annual results. What do they do and uh, uh, how have they done? 
So the annual results were to the period 28th of February 2021. NAV total return, they're up 4.1%. Uh, that was just slightly behind their reference index of 4.8%. What was driving? Oh, share price total return was actually down in the period. Uh, it's worth saying about 0.7%, just slightly down. And that reflected their discount widening from 8% to 13%. So what do they do? Well, the, the, the clues in the title, it's um, it invests across a range of asset classes uh, and in fact, it was the equity exposure that was the largest positive contributor in the period, uh, while fixed income detracted a little bit. But dividends of 4P were declared for the financial year, and that was in line with Target and actually covered, fully covered by 4Spot 1.5P uh, revenue per share. Um, and they've moved the policy on, the investment policy on a little bit since the year end uh, and changed their benchmark and name, in fact. So they're looking to kind of move the story on. Uh, let's move on to talk about Next Energy Solar Fund, one of the uh, one of the solar funds that's out there, NESF, and what have they had to say? Yep, so this is a, a quarterly update. Um, so they produced an NAV uh, at the 31st of March, and it was down slightly. And this is, um, we're seeing this is now becoming a familiar story of some of the renewable energy uh, infrastructure plays, and really it's, just, it's the same factors again. So it's the increase in UK corporation tax rate from 25%. That has a hit on the NAV valuation uh, and invariably lower power price forecasts as well. And that's exactly what's happened here. That's behind the decrease. But yield, as, as always, very important part of the story. Uh, and in fact, the dividend for the first quarter of this year takes the total dividend for the year ending 31st of March to 7.05p, and that's in line with their target and compares with 6.87p for the previous year. So on the yield side, they're still doing uh, very well. The manager highlighted that they've got a very strong pipeline, and also they made the point that actually for UK power market prices, the prospects there continue to improve as well. So they're, they're pretty positive on the future. And we can move on and talk about Octopus Renewables infrastructure in the same sort of space anyway. Uh, ORIT, is their message any different? It's very similar, to be honest. So their NAV was down slightly, about 0.87p to be precise. And again, it's the same kind of factors here. It's the UK corporation tax. A foreign currency went against them a, a little bit. But yeah, very similar kind of uh, story here. And that's one of the good things about comparing results is that you do pick up the commonalities uh, and then spot where there are some significant differences. But in the case of this one, they've announced that their dividend for the first quarter 1.25p will be paid in June. And that's in line with the 5p target for 2021. OK, we'll move on and talk about Polar Capital Global Healthcare Trust. We've talked about Polar Capital Global Financials Trust. This is a sister trust in a way, which does what it says on the tin. They've had some results as well. Yep, they had interim results for the six months to the end of March. NAV total return uh, up 3.6% in that period, and that compares with 1% uh, for their benchmark. Uh, share price a little bit better, up 3.9% uh, as their discount narrowed a little bit. And so really the outperformance here came from positive stock selection and they decreased their gearing a little bit from 5% to 3% at the start of the period. Okay, so we'll move on and now we'll talk about some of the specialist property trusts. This is uh, an area of interest to people looking primarily for income. Let's start with Civitas Social Housing, CSH, a very interesting company that uh, I did an interview with quite recently. It's a very interesting story, this one. Uh, what have they had to say? 
Yep. So they produced an update for the, again, the first quarter of 2021. So the period of the 31st of March, their NAV effectively was up slightly 0.1%. But again, it's all eyes on how these property companies are faring in terms of uh, rental income. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Civitas Social Housing uh, is faring very well. So 99% of rents due in respect to that Q1 period had been received as at the 10th of May and the balance is expected shortly there. Uh, run rate dividend cover was 100% uh, and uh, they declared a dividend of 1.35p in the period and that's in line with their target of 5.4p for their financial year. And in fact, they've announced a target dividend for their financial year ending 31st of March 2022 of 5.55p and that represents a 2.8% uh, increase year on year. Yes, indeed. And so this idea of having a target dividend is a key part of the way that these trusts uh, sell themselves, is it not? I mean, we don't see uh, other kinds of investment trusts giving dividend targets, uh, but it's because you've got a reliable stream of income, I guess. That's the idea. It's meant to illustrate how uh, how secure your income stream is going to be. That's right. I mean, all things considered, that you're spot on. They should have very good visibility in terms of their revenue over a period of time. Obviously, where that hasn't quite worked out is on the, the more commercially focused uh, property plays over the last year, where, as discussed before, they've seen a kind of gaps appear in their rent rolls. Uh, and so that's uh, resulted in, for those commercial property funds, with dividend suspensions and dividend cuts. But for this kind of specialist property company, the visibility that they get is, is very good. And, and so far, it's, it's proven to have worked. Let's move on then and talk about GCP Student Living. This is the trust that has a neat little uh, ticker of DIGS, D-I-G-S, which is what student housing used to be known as when you were pushed into the wider world as a student. How have they been performing? So again, they have their update for the first quarter of this year uh, and their EPRA NTA was the equivalent of the NAV. That was up 4.5% in the period. The portfolio was uh, revalued up 3.5%. So that's all well and good. But really, as one might imagine, um, student accommodation has clearly been hit very hard over the last year. And it's kind of all eyes in terms of where they stand in terms of bookings, not just for the 2020-21 academic year, so the academic year that we find ourselves in at the moment where they are next year. So the numbers around that is that the, the bookings are 68% for the current academic year with 71% of booked rooms currently occupied. But really in terms of where they stand next year, then obviously there's still a huge question mark. So bookings for the 21-22 academic year are currently at 26%, though they make the observation that the bookings normally come in between June and October. So we're just moving into the period now where they're going to find out how well they do next year. But in terms of their budgeted income, they're talking about 55 to 60% of budgeted total income of 60 million for the 2020-21 year. So it'd be a very interesting one to watch how this one fares. Um, they have uh, declared dividend in respect to the quarter, that first quarter of 0.25p, and that's in line with the previous quarter so that gives them a, an annualised uh, run rate of a penny across the year, but that compares with a pre-pandemic rate of one spot five eight p. So you can see how the dividend's been hit by what's happened over the last year. Yes, indeed. And so this is not a trust that's actually selling primarily on its uh, on its yield. They're both in the same sector. How do those two compare? Civitas Social Housing and GCP Student Living. I, I imagine that uh, one of them is rated rather differently from the other one. And you're absolutely right. Yeah, so Civitas Social Housing, probably on about a 9% premium or so, and it's averaged a 1% premium over the last year. So the rating has been very strong. 
its yield on a historic basis, at least of about 4.6%. GCP student living is an interesting story. So it's on a discount, perhaps unsurprisingly, about 7% or so at the moment. But its actual average discount over the previous 12 months has been uh, 19%. In other words, we have seen a a re-rating recently, and that might be because people potentially see this as a kind of reopening play uh, and believe there's some value there. But obviously, the yield at the moment is lower than some of the other uh, property plays, given what we talked about earlier. So we might expect to see some movement there when the actual figures for June, September come come through. We actually find out how many students are going back to university and uh, having to find somewhere to live. Okay, we'll move on to Impact Healthcare, REIT, IHR, Impact Healthcare, different sector of the same, but still in the property uh, sector. What have they had to say, Simon? So again, they produced their Q1 2021 update. Uh, Their NAV per share was up 0.8% in the period. So an NAV total return of 2.3%. And that's in line with their total return target of 9% per annum. Uh, Their property portfolio was valued at £427 million at the end of March. And that was up about 0.7% on a like-for-like basis. But uh, I think we talked about this one in recent weeks because they raised um, some additional capital and this portfolio uh, continues to be built out. It now comprises of 111 healthcare properties. It's got 13 uh, different tenants. And in terms of the dividend, they declared their dividend of 1.6025p for the first quarter. And that's in line with their target of six spot for 1p for their financial year. And perhaps we talked a lot about rent collection, but it might not come as a surprise in the healthcare sector. They've actually, it's been 100% rent collection has been maintained. Indeed. Okay. And finally, in this segment, uh, residential secure income. That's a resi, R-E-S-I is the ticker. Residential secure income. Also in this uh, UK residential property sector, which uh, I don't think existed 10 years ago, but now has a number of names in it. So let's hear what they've had to say. So their NAV was up 0.1% in that Q1 period. Their property portfolio was valued at £325 million, and that was up 0.4% on a like-for-like basis. Again, all eyes on the rent collection. It's very strong, 99% collected in the period, and that's been unchanged throughout uh, the pandemic. So dividend cover was 82%, uh, and that's just slightly ahead of the 80% full year target. And uh, perhaps more importantly, the full year dividend cover is on track to be achieved in July this year, July 2021, on a look-through basis. So the dividend's been maintained at one spot 25p, uh, and that's in line for a, a 5p per share total dividend for the, the current financial year. Okay, and so just to round that off there, how are they trading? So uh, residential secure income finds itself, um, it's actually on a discount at the moment, it's on a 9% discount. It's got a market cap of about £163 million at the moment and a a yield uh, on a historic basis uh, of around about 5%. Okay, and so that brings us to the end of this set of results. Finally, let's talk about Hypnosis Songs Fund, shall we, for a change? They've been out with another announcement. They've acquired another catalogue. That's S-O-N-G, Song. We like to keep track of what they're up to, shall we say. Who have they signed up now, Simon? They've signed a gentleman called Andy Wallace. I'm sure he features in your record collection. Apparently, he's a Grammy award-winning producer. Uh, He's credited on our albums with over 120 million uh, global sales and he's collaborated with artists including Aerosmith, Bruce Springsteen, Coldplay and Nirvana. 
and the copyrights acquired 100% of producer, mixer and performance royalties for the catalogue and it comprises over 17,000 songs. So he's obviously had a, a very busy career. Uh, the catalogue includes 339 top 10 hits and perhaps more importantly generated uh, revenue of about 870,000 US dollars in 2020. Okay, so I just did a quick calculation there, looking at the uh, the revenues, 339 top 10 hits and generated 874,000. So even if it was just the 339 top 10 hits, they're not earning a lot of money, are they? Let's face it. But uh, presumably that's, it's, there's rather a wide distribution there between the ones that do very well and the ones that don't. Anyway, good luck to him. I have heard of most of some of these artists, which obviously means that he must be quite old. Never mind. Uh, let's uh, let's round up. If you're interested in talking more about uh, investment trusts, I've just done another interview for the uh, Moneymakers Circle, this time with Nick Greenwood, the manager of the Mighton Global Opportunities Trust, who's talking about the kind of trust he's been adding to his portfolio and the ones he's got rid of. Uh, always very interesting. He explores the, the more arcane areas of the market looking for special situations in the investment trust world. Always very interesting to talk to him. Uh, Simon, that's all we have time for this week. But uh, thank you again for your time and expertise. And we'll look forward to speaking again next week. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.